I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Rick Bradbury on the Ranch Investor Podcast came out from Eastern Oregon to Billings, Montana. And for anyone, if this is the first time you heard Rich's name, Rich Brad- Bradbury, you're going to have to go back to our last episode for some background because this is part two and we're not going to we're not going to give a background. We're going to just jump right into our last conversation. Uh, Rich is a free grazer who came all the way from Ireland. <laughs> no, the, the Bradbury family, when was that when they came over? Oh, the Bradbury family, they've been in the country for a long time. It's my mom's, the Fitzgeralds. Oh. And it, we all came in through San Francisco, so I don't have an epic American story. Um, yeah, they all came in in boats from San Francisco. We've only been, I still have relatives that were born in Ireland that live in Lakeview. Well, it was still a hard wagon, wagon ride to Eastern Oregon from San Francisco back in the late 1800s. I had one grandfather that did come, a great grandfather that did come in through New York. And he said if he had known better, he wouldn't have gone to New York. He would have gone to San Francisco like everybody else because he ended up pushing the stage all the way across the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that struck me from our conversation yesterday is you, your family has been able to accomplish some things that are extremely difficult in ranching, and that's working with neighbors and community members. So we talked about the historic MC, which you are a part owner in now, and your your mom and your dad uh, put that together, helped put that together with the community members and the Nature Conservancy. Um, tell me more about some of these. You were hesitant to call it a co-op. Yeah, no, I would call it more of a distinct operating entities, but we call it the MC Group. So. What other communist efforts have you, has your family been involved in? So I think with, uh, we started, my mom, me, I usually, because I was 12 when they started it, but um, started a company called Country Natural Beef. Which is a pretty big name today. Yes. I, I, I suspect it's a billion dollar company today, is it not? It would be, I guess it would be kind if it was valued, if you could value it in any traditional way, but because of the structure of the company, it's, I'll back up. The company itself, probably not, but if you put in the amount of ranches and cattle and pure acreage, yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal. So on a... Over probably a million private acres in the West are under control of ranchers that are members of country natural beef. Right, it's hard to value a co-op because of the voting structure, ownership structure, but on a, on a discounted cash flow analysis, it probably could could be close to a billion, but That'd be tough not to the say. assets. So it does, uh, well, it purposely was designed with no assets. Basically, the only thing a company owns is its brand. Yeah, that's what the, the marketing of what is country natural beef? Because uh, this is going to take us into the next uh, Marxist revolution. You yeah. <laughs> well, it's not the traditional co-op that it had been for 35 years, but it is still very much a rancher-owned cooperative. 
and the ranchers run the cooperative. Um, it was uniquely designed and it sort of evolved over time. Um, so I'll just start at the beginning. My parents and 12 other ranchers had gone to the Savory Institute in Albuquerque when he was in Albuquerque giving um, classes. Came back at various different times and over a two year period sort of got together and decided that they would try and um, create a, decommodified themselves and find a niche market that they could fill. We are fortunate to be in Oregon and um, we had a really great leadership in Doc and Connie Hatfield, who are tremendous people and um, husband and wife team, but both brought lots of great skills to the table. Connie had a lot of drive and a lot of marketing vision. Uh, Doc was very pragmatic, logical, um, really great at holding relationships and negotiating. And uh, Connie was good at negotiating also, but she was uh, much more uh, come into the room, throw some tables over, and tell everybody that they should be doing whatever was right, and then Doc would smooth it over. But she um, she just thought that it was in the early 80s, that it was after the bit last, one of the big cattle booms and things were settling down, the market was probably oversaturated with cattle. And she really felt for the amount of work that they were putting in, they should get better value for the calves that they were producing. So she started going around and asking people what they wanted. And at that time, we're sort of in the jazzercise Jane Fonda era, and people wanted lean beef. And so she got us uh, one store in Bend, Oregon, in Port Market, which is still there. I was just in it last week. It's a beautiful store, and uh, but it's very much Bend, Oregon. It's very much West Coast, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, it's, but it just happens to be in the desert. But it has that type of health conscious consumer that has the discretionary income to buy a more value added product or premium beef product. And so we went along and went along and uh, um, there's probably the, the, the Newport market was the first year took like one hit. <laughs> they actually had a fight over who got to haul it to the, to the <laughs> processor. <laughs> Anyways, and it, that sort of happened. I mean, it went along for a couple of years and there was one head, three head. And then, um, just how random the universe works, there was this giant upswing of interest in Oregon beef from Japan. At the time, they had a soap opera called From Oregon with Love about a Japanese family that had a ranch in Oregon. And Interesting, so never heard of that. There was this mania about getting beef. And so that is really when the co-op got named it's called country natural beef but originally it was called Oregon country beef just for the reason of that to market to the Japanese so we partnered with a uh, Japanese company called um, Keitaro and uh, they start shipping beef from Portland uh, from Oregon from uh, from our ranches over to J Japan and it was a really great relationship it lasted for years then all of a sudden Keitaro was uh, I'm probably saying this name wrong, but um, it had other holdings that sort of uh, caused it to crash and go bankrupt, and they left us hanging with all these cattle that we've been processing. And once again, the universe was working in our favor. Whole Foods was moving to the West Coast, and uh, there was another one called New Season, not New Seasons. Um, Whole Foods bought it. Can't remember what the name of it was. Very much a Whole Foods type market and so 
we were able to start putting those cattle into that supply chain. And Whole Foods just kept growing and growing, and we kept going along with it. And uh, now we market cattle all up and down the West Coast, all the way over to Denver. Um, I should, I'm using the wheat pretty literally. People that are in country natural beef now. And uh, I think all the way back to Minneapolis. So that's amazing that you can get ranchers to come together and do that, especially in the 80s. I think every uh, cattleman group in every county and every state says we should form a co-op for value-added marketing and to vertically integrate our processes and cut out the, the beef brokers and the processor and yeah, it's a, it's a natural capitalistic idea to stream, streamline, vertically integrate and uh, it's just, it's very difficult. The feasibility co-op development is something that I only wish upon my worst enemies. What you have to think about when you think about a co-op is the economy of scale it provides you. So by pooling resources, you develop an economy of scale. We started another co-op in 2015 that's grass-fed, and it's still around. So like any good rancher, you said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin off and be a maverick and do my own thing? Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> the natural trans transition of ranchers is, uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to be a maverick and a trailblazer, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to leave the group and go do my own thing. Well, here, here's an interesting thing. So one of the things, one of the requirements to be in Oregon country beef, well, or country natural beef, was that you had to be on a weekly call every Wednesday at six o'clock in the morning. 126 ranchers get on a phone call. And we talk about the beef business. And um, so that was something. The other requirement is you had to go to the two meetings. And they started in a barn in Brothers, Oregon, and now they're at the Sheridan, and uh, or I don't know what the name of the hotel is, in Portland, so people can fly in. And there's 300 people there at any given time, and there's people that, there's, there's salespeople and uh, people that just want to get in the door. So that's it. So if you can get your, you're asking the seat in the country natural beef meeting you really you're, you're doing something as a salesman so um it's an it's an incredible experience to go watch that's amazing growth from 12 to 300 producers well it's not it's partners so one of the unique things about our experience with kataro was we learned about mutually beneficial relationships and so from very early on in the co-op history, we always strive to create a relationship with our business partners that what so it wasn't cutthroat. So if they're having a tough time, we'd take we'd we'd help them mitigate the risk a little bit. We'd take a little hit and we balance it back and forth. So like Whole Foods comes to us and say, "Hey, look, we need to run. We need to bump up our beef prices on our in the back in the protein section. We need to pull more people in." We want you to take a little hit here. It's not, it's, it's still premium. You're just taking a hit on a premium, so it's not the end of the world. So yeah, say they drop the price 10 cents and they get more people in the door. In Whole Foods, the beef counter is a lost leader. It's to get people in the door. And so if they can make a good enough deal on proteins, then they're gonna sell more stuff in the store that actually adds value to them. So. Has a much higher margin. Yeah. 
So that's the kind of relationship, and by working with it, and like, um, there was times um, we had to go to bat for Whole Foods over, um, um, with, well, we went to bat with Whole Foods over um, some union stuff that happened with uh, some of the dairies in Oregon. We got lumped into it because of proximity where the feedlot was. And uh, so we, yeah, we went and stood side by side with um, Whole Foods and said, look, this is how it is. And we helped educate the consumer about it. It wasn't as big a deal as they'd said. So mutual beneficial relationships, it's... Uh, do you call your mutual beneficial relationships, do you call them comrade? No. <laughs> the Japanese word for it is Shinrai. <laughs> And it's a it's a traditional it's a long it goes way back in Japanese culture. Shinrai is this thing where you create a win win for as much as possible for the people that you're around. I'm being a hard ass, Rich, because <laughs> I have dabbled in co-op development. Um, I mean, I in college I explored with uh, communism, but uh, no, I a few years ago uh, we were trying to launch a grasping co-op. Modeled, <clears throat> modeled much like the Nature Conservancies, uh, we we analyzed what they were doing with Ranchard Stewardship Alliance closely, and the Winnet Aces, a working group, and we had a shot at some economies of scale, some leases. So the the theory was, why not use this grass bank as a heifer development enterprise? Because the heifer development enterprise is your most expensive livestock enterprise on a ranch and much to every rancher's uh, uh, denial you can actually you actually not can but uh, if you outsource that enterprise if you buy bred heifers they produce them cheaper and at a better quality than you do on your own ranch I'm sorry, 98% of ranchers out there, you do not produce the best replacement heifers and you don't produce them as a uh, cost leader. So that was the first enterprise you should consider outsourcing with your livestock production. So that was our theory, uh, us academics in an ivory tower, but trying to put it into, uh, to actually get it going. And part of the problem is uh, I was trying to ramrod this in March of 2020, when oh, nobody was sure if we could have in-person meetings and some of the partners, like, uh, well, these conservation groups from blue areas where they, they show up in a Subaru and Patagonia clothing, so, so chicken shit of COVID. They would not take an in-person meeting. The government employees, they couldn't take an in-person meeting, wouldn't. And you have this huge battle between ranchers who just don't care about COVID and some necessary working partners relationships to help launch this grass bank co-op. And, uh, but then we did get some, we got some traction. We got on some leases and actually putting the working plans together. Uh, we needed only five members to form a co-op in the state of Montana and we could not get five ranchers to work together on outsourcing their heifer development enterprise because they thought that their bulls were better, they thought that their calves were better, they thought that their vaccination program was better, they thought they could produce them cheaper, they were wrong on all accounts, 
definitively, objectively, financially wrong, but um, denial is a very strong thing to deal with. Yep. So that's that's my why I cast these stones of calling you a red. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's get back well, into that. You I gotta get. I gotta get. I'll go real calm on you, and uh, I'll tell you how it works. And uh, yeah, please. We sit in giant circles, and everybody gets to talk. And they and there's a facilitator that since the beginning has monitored that monitors each set of meetings. So when you go to Portland, there's a circle that encompasses that's the most of the people are at the back of the room, and we have to have a room big enough so that that there's a the biggest space in the entire room is the middle of the circle, and then you have everybody. There's now two rows, three rows sometimes of people back to back. But everybody in that circle speaks. They don't have to say anything, but they have to turn it. They get the mic and they have to say, I don't have anything to say, or I agree with this. But it's designed so that everybody talks. And then when we're making decisions, that protocol in the circle stays that way. And so you can't talk, there's nobody talking over each other. And if you want to make a point, you have to wait until the, your turn comes back around the circle. And what you find, you find that the people in the rest of the room are really pretty smart. Doc Hatfield used to say, you know, I have a pretty high IQ, but when I walk, when I get into this circle, it gets raised by 25 points. And so, what you thought was going to be the answer, by the time it works through all these people around this circle, you start to see flaws in what your answer was, you start to see better ideas, and then it just naturally resolves, but you have to limit the people talking over each other. You have to take the ego out of it. And you have to get the voices in the room of the people that would normally not talk. And that's pretty powerful because there's a lot of smart introverts out there that get stepped on by people that are extroverted. And there's people, I think introverts probably actually spend more time thinking through problems than people that like myself, that talk all the time. And so uh, you need both, but um, if you don't give the introverts the time to get their voice in the room, you lose all that value you have from them. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, they are, <clears throat> their uh, personality type is very analytical, introverts. And Alan Nation, uh, God rest his soul, the former founder of Stockman Grass Farmer, he had a quote. He was against co-ops, farm ag co-ops, because if everyone has an opinion and if everyone thinks that their opinion is valued, weighted equally, then there's no sense of leadership and there's no accountability and responsibility. How do you get past that? There are leaders. We do have leaders. Different people take on... So what emerged in Country Natural Beef and what's emerged in our, our newest co-op, uh, Desert Mountain Grassfed Beef, is the marketing team takes on, they really sort of become the CEO of the operation. They're the customer front per people. Um, they're the ones that are out talking to the people that are buying the beef the most. They're getting the feedback from the people that we need to sell our beef. And so they sort of set the tone. And so... You can't be switching marketing people all the time, so the marketing tenures tend to be longer. And so that 
leadership naturally falls on them. But I've seen the evolution of the co-op as it grows, um, new rules, roles get, new roles start to emerge. Um, bookkeeping, this one we're struggling with in the new co-op right now. Who's going to take books? Who's going to be responsible for that? That's naturally going to work out. It's not working out as fast as most people would like it to work out, but when we get to the solution, it will be the best solution. And uh, that emerged in Desert Mountain Beef, the lady that was their CFO, basically, was the CFO. She was from Antelope, about wild, talked about wild, wild country. Yeah. Um, so uh, she was right there in Antelope. She's CPA. Um, she went to Oregon State, more than qualified. She ran multi-million dollar, possibly billion dollar business for 30 years. And she sourced all of her employees from right around there. And the way that the co-op works is that was her company. So she was an entity within the grand, grander umbrella of the co-op that provided a service for the co-op. And replacing her was no small thing. I mean, now there's an entire new accounting staff, new bookkeeping staff that's been set up and they've, they, but they brought new ideas. They brought a better, more a platform to manage the inventory a little bit better, that kind of stuff. And then production naturally evolves. Pretty soon you get so many cattle and you have to fulfill so many things that one group of people has to take on the production and it's, it starts another little business that just manages the cattle. So you actually, in a, the co-ops that I've seen be successful is, as it evolves, all these little businesses start emerging under this bigger umbrella. But they're not controlled. There's a, a level of autonomy so that they don't, those little businesses don't have to go to the whole group every time. They, at some point, the group decides, we trust these people, we're going to have a certain amount of oversight on them, but other than that, we're going to step back and just let them do their job. And it's sort of that Malcolm Gladwell thing, when you default to trust. So when you find somebody that can really do a good job, then how much do you really want to, lack of a better term, F with them? Yeah. So. Somewhat decentralized in the non-hierarchical structure is what you're saying. Yeah. And like like you said, um, uh, Who Not How is another good book about you delegate authority and responsibility to people because they can do a better job than you. Yep. And when you're paying them and they are an expert in their field, why waste your time micromanaging and writing herd on them? That's what they're getting paid for. They take their job seriously, uh, delegate that out and trust uh, that they're gonna do a better job than you are in their area of expertise. Yep. And I think the other interesting thing that you have to learn from being in a co-op like I have, and it's taken me 40 years to figure this out, there's a big difference between shareholder and stakeholder. What's the difference there? A lot of ranchers, I believe, believe that they can go into these things as a shareholder. Shareholder is somebody that sort of monitors how it goes. They expect people to give them reports. They expect all these services from these co-ops, especially early on. When you're bootstrapping a co-op, and that's the only way a co-op can really get built because ranchers don't have any money. Their money's all tied up in equity. So anything that, any way of creating that, you have to either pay somebody to create it or you have to do it yourself. And that's the role of the stakeholder. 
stakeholder is a rancher that gets in there in the beginning, goes to the stores, goes to the processing plants, and works every week, or at, sometimes we have five calls a week in the grass-fed coral, to figure out how we're going to solve these problems. That's a stakeholder responsibility. A shareholder gets the report after the threat calls. And so a lot of people think that because they're like co-ops that they have in the Midwest with the gas stations and the corn and the fertilizer, Field feed. Yeah. Yeah. that they can just, they're just a shareholder, they get some benefits from being in this co-op. A rancher, a producer, owned co-op, you have to have a stakeholder mentality about it. You, it's, you have to manage it just like you manage your ranch. You can't, it's not something that you get into and then you walk away. And then it took 35 years for country natural beef to get from, to completely flop pretty much from a stakeholder relationship to a shareholder relationship. So now you can pretty much send cattle. You don't have to be engaged in all the meetings and uh, you don't have to go to, even though they do, most people do because it's still an informal requirement that the co-op has. It pretty much runs without that everyday rancher involvement. But it didn't naturally do that. It took years to get to that point. And um, I think that's what my family struggles with is uh, we're just control freaks. And we prefer that stakeholder relationship. And I mean, I still trust the people that do the books. I still trust the people that do the production. But I like to get my hands dirty. I like to be in it. And that's why we're really enjoying doing this uh, grass-fed. And grass-fed brings a whole different le level of challenges than commod traditional commod commodity beef. And um, so I wouldn't say country natural beef is commodity beef, but that first swing in the 80s of natural beef is quickly... Um, Commoditized. Yeah. There's a lot of options out there. Yeah. Yeah, well, High Desert, uh, your marketing team must be doing an excellent job because I knew of that brand and that company, and I didn't even know they were a co-op, but I knew of that brand of beef before I knew you. Yeah. So they're out there, they're doing a great job. Yeah, and it's relatively small, it's Tracy. Oh, well, yeah. she's doing an excellent job. <laughs> yeah, so um, it, the interesting thing, that we probably taken from Country Natural Beef when we started Desert Mountain Grassroot Beef is we put a lot more money per head on marketing. It's almost to the point where it's choke worthy to do it, but to get established, that's just something that we have to do. And that's a so taking it back to uh, the ranch investor, how does being a member of these co-ops benefit your overall investment in the ranch? There's the direct financial way. So if you can, all these co-ops are complicated because you have to figure out how to finance your cattle until retail. But if you can do that, the premium on the hook at the retail level is so much greater. It just provides you an incredible amount of cash flow. Um, but there's non-intrinsic things that I think are the real benefits and that's what keeps people in these co-ops. Um, you're challenged all the time to bring a better product to the market. And anytime you're challenged to bring a better product, product 
products in the market, you work constantly in your organization, in your branch, in your business, trying to find improvements and efficiencies that you can make so that you can satisfy that end customer. And the end customer has demands on you, like um, there's a lot of third-party certifiers that I don't particularly agree with, but um, that's a constant pressure back to the ranch to continue to produce this, qual this quality. And um, the benefit of being in a co-op is you do not have to be in that struggle by yourself. You know that there's a bunch of other smart ranchers that you can take a problem to and you can work it through together and work out a, the better solution for it. So it's the intrinsic stuff I think that people miss in the value of it. And if you can get all the intrinsic stuff lined up and working, then the economics just sort of work themselves out. And the tough, but that's the tough part. That's the that's the messy part. Is the intrinsic, the stuff that doesn't. Well, and you have like a, it's almost like a mastermind group. You have a group of peers, there's peer support, professional support that everyone is sharing best practices. And it's like having a board for your ranch. Yeah. Which um, most ranchers hate that idea that I'm not gonna answer to anyone, I'm gonna do it my way, but they also get left behind when it comes to the guys who are taking constructive criticism and who are uh, considering other ideas and who are analyzing uh, what, what the leaders are doing in that industry. So yeah, I, I see it as uh, this community of, uh, there's no group think going on. And yep. when, you're, when you're your own independent Maverick rancher, you have a board of one who is uh, chief cook and bottle washer, and uh, that can be dangerous. Though, I always, this is my big saying, the internet is a graveyard of failed grass-fed operations. Yeah. You can still go on the internet and find, because they don't, they don't even take their websites down, of independent guys that had grass-fed figured out, and they, went, they did great, they had probably had a great market for two or three years, then they either ran into, they didn't have the way to keep fresh product year-round, or any number of things can happen that you need that economy of scale to absorb. That's another benefit of co-op is that it's just not you. It's, and so like, say your 150 head are behind. Well, if it's just you, then you're screwed because you're not going to make that delivery. But if you have another, if it's just 150 head in 3,000, then you have a lot more options that you can make up. And we have Tracy. And so we don't have to, there's not somebody at the ranch worried about marketing all the time or, you know, doing the online store or coordinating that kind of stuff. She just submit, I get two or three emails from her today, like articles I should be aware of. Uh, and a lot of the group sort of uses her as a clearinghouse and sends it out. There's just these little benefits that if you can get over that initial block in your mind of that independence, you can, I've never really felt in it all the time that I was in a co-op that I lost any independence. Actually, I think that I, that the choices that my parents made in building these business structures, I think they actually gave us a lot more independence than what we ever had before, a lot more options and a lot more quality experiences that 
if I would have stayed in plush uh, and stuck to commodity ranchers, I'd never been in a store in Salem or Seattle or, and I wouldn't have been in these huge group meetings and saw these, like the antibiotic problem. When we went non-antibiotic, you would have thought it was the end of the world. The, simple was real, the solution was relatively simple, but it took 13 meetings, intense meetings, yelling and screaming, throwing hats on the ground. <laughs> and, uh, but we made the jump and it was worth it. And we were, we in, at the time, we were innovators. Only people that had stopped, had not done antibiotics, was, was this very small scale. And when Country Natural Beef decided it was going to go antibiotic free, it was a big deal. And we were early market movers on it at a reasonable scale. You're gonna kill my whole goddamn herd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you brought up third-party certification, and uh, I think you might have some strong opinions about that. <laughs> I, do. I do. Tell tell me what is third-party certification, and give a little background to it, as well as uh, the the federal government thinking that they can also be the arbiters of truth and standards with USDA Organic. Um, so give us a little background on what it is and why you are a, a voice out there who continually uh, shits all over third, third party <laughs> verifiers. <laughs> um, so at first it was a really clever marketing and it was something that John Mackey came up with at Whole Foods. And I'm a big John Mackey fan. He's a libertarian. I like the way he thinks. I think he just made a big mistake with this. Book. I'm a big, because he brought up GAP. Yeah. That, and that was really the standard. What is GAP? GAP is the Global Animal Partnership. And uh, it's basically a humane, humane treatment of animals um, standard. And there's levels, gap yeah, one, two, three, three four, four, five. five. Yeah. And I, I'm a big fan. I've yet to read his book, um, but John Mackey is a outstanding libertarian who's who has changed our food system single-handedly. Yeah. Conscious capitalism. Yes. Yes. That's a good book. Mackey's brilliant. Uh, he's, he's always getting interviewed by Nick Gillespie of Reason Magazine, and there's so he's a. All right. I think he went too far with uh, Gap, and I think he actually probably it was probably if you if he ever got one on one, I think he would probably admit it, it was a mistake, or he could have gone a different direction with it. So he created a third. He created standards to show consumers how his product of beef that he was selling on the retail shelves of Whole Foods was better than. Walmart, Costco. Yeah, that's where it started. Was uh, maybe some you know clever marketing, but yeah, uh, you know maybe there was actually some good social capital being created and some value from it. But where have we gone from there? Yeah. So Country Natural Beef was actually really uh, instrumental in the original gap because it was originally you a pre program that we brought over here and tried to modify. Well, our cows don't live in barns at night. So it was really hard for the Europeans that came over here to come out to High Desert Ranch and it's like, where are all your barns? Where are your cattle sleep? They're like, in the brush, just like we do when we're out with them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually, I argue all the time still to this day when I'm going through my GAP certification because we always get new people because the turnover is so high. They're like, well, 
you just leave them out in the desert. I'm like, what is more ethical than not messing with something that's just going about eating grass and having this? Why do you want me in these cattle all the time, bugging them and tagging them and do it? I said, where, where is the real ethical line here? I mean, it's humane treatment. I think a cow would not like to see me for six months, other than maybe occasionally I drive by them in the pickup and make sure they got water. They probably appreciate me checking that I have water. But anyways, so yeah, we, so that's a nuanced detail of yeah. of a standard of gap. But uh, today we have, I mean, there must be forty third-party certifications out there. Uh, it's insane. I mean, Savory has one. I would imagine Patagonia has one for wool and... Patagonia was very instrumental in creating the um, um, regenerative organic certification. So and what the hell do all these things mean? I mean, you're, you're out there saying we... I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but we don't need another snake oil, greenwashed, no. bullshit, third-party verification. Why? Having come from oil, having spent time in oil and gas, oil and gas has a standard, and their gold standard is the API, the American Petroleum Institute, and it's very much a collaborative group of people that are in the oil field. All the companies all agree to it, and people that are advocating for more safety in the oil field. It's a very good overall set. It creates educational programs, certification, training. Like I have multiple different API endorsements. They probably expire now, but why hasn't the oil field I had to have them? I never felt like it was an infringement on my business. And none of the businesses I worked for, it was an assist, it was an aid to put producers. For some reason in agriculture, and I think it's our um, propensity to jump on value added stuff. And sometimes we don't read the fine print about what we're getting into. We have never been allowed to create that API for ranching. It just never came about. And so what we've been stuck with is, and this is my joke, and um, anybody can become a certified certification organization. You can write the certifications in your underwear. And I've actually seen certifications that are stolen from other certifiers where they didn't even bother to take off the name of the one they stole it to on the fine print of the footnotes. <laughs> and so um, it's a really lucrative position. It's uh, one where you may have no risk and you make no investment, but you can tr control everything. And so if this is many layers to this, if you're an advocate of ESG, which is environmental, um, social and governance. This is a, a certification program not an agriculture is a really good tool for you. And you can force lots of change with not much investment. And no market should have be influenced by anybody that doesn't put investment and risk on the line. As the rancher, I take the lion's share of the investment. I have to go to the bank. I have to sign the, I have to Find the collateral, I have to sign my name to it, and I'm on the hook for that investment. In the entire beef production chain, supply chain, I have the most on the line. I have the most risk and I have the most money on the line. Every party there after me has less on the line. And 
when you get to certifications, they have zero, zero on the line, and they have given an amount of power if they want to wield it that way. And I think that's unfair to put agriculture into. I don't not believe in animal, humane treatment of animals, but I do think it should be a non-abrasive body that manages it that isn't about profit. And they will tell you that they're non-profit. Well, non-profits, I've seen a lot of people in real estate that have non-profit organizations that make a lot of money. And there's no, and if you look at Nature Conservancy, I think part of their drawback is they were making a lot of profit. And they had to really, I think they had to stop and make some real philosophical changes so that they could maintain that sort of non-profit quality that they wanted. Because I think they're getting dangerously close to not being able to defend that anymore. I think that they recognize that and they're dialing it back. But Well, I wanna I wanna summarize this, so help me understand it. What I hear is that your issue is these armchair activists and environmentalists who are living in Blue Islands on the coast. They are academics and ideologues, and they believe that they should have a say in creating a standard for ranchers and ag product producers. Um, and you're saying that they are so far removed from the actual uh, implementation of their their ideals and their programs, but not just removed, they don't have a true economic stake. They don't have a true cultural stake in what's happening going on. They, they bear no risk. They put all that onto the producer. And it's a, your belief, is your belief that they are trying to control the food system and producers? 100%. Yeah. 100%. So now, you brought up that that's not fair. Well, tough shit, Rich. Life isn't fair. So what? What's the solution here? Well, I'm, I'm saying that, and other industries have solved it, and they have more fair over uh, these sort of governance bodies. I, I'd say absolutely. I mean, yeah. the Realtor Association is a trade, private trade group, driven yeah. by the members who have the largest stake. The realtors are self-policing. They do a better job of industry standards than the Department of Labor could ever do. Mm -hmm. And they do it much more cost-effectively. So yes, and the realtor, that is probably the biggest example of why private uh, stakeholders in that trade, in that uh, area of industry and economy, why they can self-regulate better than the government. The next one would be FINRA, financial industries. Yep. FINRA is a much better self-policing, member-owned, member-operated organization for financial protection of, of consumers. Um, and that's what the Realtor Association protects consumers at the end of the day. They don't protect their members. They protect consumers just as FINRA does. And so I agree, there are better models out there. What's the solution for beef and for ranching? I struggle with this because I believe that People in production agriculture have been so beat down that they really don't think that there's a way to go forward. And anybody that stands up, it's uh, 
it's almost like uh, the monkey experiment. You the know? grape and the cucumber? No, no. The bananas. There's a pyramid, and there's bananas that are above the pyramid that the monkeys can just barely reach. And so over time, the monkeys will go up and they'll go for the banana, but every time one of them gets really close, they all get hosed down. It doesn't matter where they're at. And so they, even though the banana's a tempting thing, they just never go to the banana. And then what they do over the time is they work out the monkeys that have been um, hosed. They add a new one, and the new one goes. And eventually, over time, there's no monkeys that have ever been sprayed, but they know they've been, they've been, they've been conditioned not to pursue the bananas. They don't know what the repercussion of it is, but they don't ever go after the banana. I think that's the place that we've got into agriculture. Um, and I think that's a lot of that has, I think there's this divide, especially in the mind of the American consumer. Most of the bad stuff that leaves a bad taste in the consumer's mouth doesn't happen on the land level. It happens in boardrooms, it happens in the parts of the supply chain. The choices in the supply chain in those boardrooms are what affects the amount of money that we can put back on the land to improve it. And, but, it's very convenient for those people in the supply chain and in those boardrooms to just push all that, all that uh, negativity down to the ground level where you got the guy that's making pennies on the dollar for what he's putting into it and say, look, there's your villain. Even though the supply chain is set up to make that person at the, at the very beginning of the process fail. So again, uh, it's easy to point out problems. What's the solution? Um, I think the solution is for, um, it would be, I think it would behoove producers, and it would be nice if the Cattlemen's Association could come up with something that worked for Walmart, Costco, Whole Foods, and had a real practical people that were doing the certifications, and that we evolved that. And I would also like to see them create training evolving around this, like low-stress animal handling, um, maybe doctoring strategies and stuff. And not benefit just this, not desert, not benefit just desert mountain grass fed beef, not benefit certified Angus, but benefit everybody. And make it relatively easy access for maybe economically challenged farmers um, or ranchers to get into. Make the cost lower and have the bigger guys sort of pick up the economy of scale on it. But there should be like one true um, certification or a humane, humane certification that encompasses all the stakeholders and all the shareholders or every party that's up and down the supply chain. But it should probably be managed closer to the people that do the certification should probably be the one that should be probably closer to where those animals are raised to the land and be more of a peer to the ranchers and farmers than somebody. My current certifiers, auditors, are in New York. The last one I got was she had never been 
west New Mississippi, and she'd only been on three dairies. And I'm pretty sure she had an art history major. <laughs> that was now forgiven. Her student loans are now yes. paid off. So, and I don't have any problems against this person. I run a high desert ranch operation that encompasses hundreds of thousands of miles. I run a common with a bunch of different people and we run horses, our cattle don't sleep in barns, and um, my, our philosophy, our ranching philosophy is pretty much hands off if everybody's healthy. I mean, we, we're not, not engaged with our cattle, but um, if everybody's healthy, we don't really screw with them that much. And if you get into the documentation and everything in these certifications, there's constant tagging, there's constant doctoring, there's constant this, there's constant that. And the animals, I don't see how they ever get a break. If you were to do a, a gap five, gap four, you would be harassing that animal on a weekly basis. And I don't think that's what the, I don't think that's what the, anybody set out to do is to make the animal to, every little interaction you have with an animal creates stress. And maybe they just get to living with it, but I don't know that that creates the most healthy animal either. Well, I, I'm going to keep belaboring this issue because I, as a free market libertarian, I don't mind that Savory has their own program. Patagonia probably has something in the works. World Wildlife Fund, I, I don't care. Bring out 60 different certification programs from the coast, the Blue Islands that were developed by academics in an ivory tower, and let the best one win out. Let the best ideas compete and win out. What's wrong with that? You think that's really the world we live in? So you would say that it's probably follow the money and whoever gets the McDonald's contract, whoever sold their bullshit program the best is, is gonna win, even though it might not be the actual true uh, program creating the most value. So there is a certifier that a lot of ranchers use and I won't say it, but the two founders of it, I actually had an investigator hired to dig into the background of them. And the last time, the, the last paperwork I could find on the guy was when he stopped being the Yale quarterback in 1995, four. Other than that, other than a couple addresses in Colorado, he's virtually, has no history. His wife, on the other hand, she has quite the history. She worked for two of the largest packing plants that had two of the largest recalls in the history. And then she became a marketing director for McDonald's. Then shortly after they found, they uh, founded their certification program. So the fox is in the hen house. I think so. Ranchers have brought in a Trojan horse and what's wrong with following the money? Um, I mean, with, with transparency in the long run, sure, this is, we, you and I are saying, you are, that this is bullshit in the short run, but won't all that come out in the wash in the long run? So let's, let's go back to the emphasis of this. And this isn't a conspiracy theory or anything, but I'll start another podcast for conspiracy yeah. theories. How much do you think that ESG is going to affect agriculture? <clears throat> Um, I, I 
think it is it's continually affecting agriculture uh, but it will get commoditized and once it is greenwashed by by BlackRock, um, Goldman Sachs, by Walmart, Amazon, then it has no value. It is a commodity. It's not rare. It's not unique. So I think in in the short run, we are seeing we are seeing a lot of changes come from a lot of different directions. Um, it's happening, but I don't think it's going to last, is my, my theory. I guess the question is, how much pain is agriculture? It's going to be afflicted on agriculture, why they're figuring out that it's not going to last. A lot. Yeah. There's a, a lot of pain. So, I find this interesting crossroads. Um, the United States has this really unique structure that's probably unique amongst the world. And I get a lot of backlash for this, but we really do a pretty good job in this country of protecting our environment. We have the EPA, we have stringent water quality rights. The USDA alone has a rigorous process to make sure, yeah, we have recalls of every now and then, but they're easily traced back. So, and they go, oh, all these food systems around the world are better than ours. I don't really think so. No way. I think I, that, yeah. I'm not just a nationalist and uh, American exceptionalism, but no, we have, by far, we have the best standards for ecosystems, environmentalism. Our producers are the most animal husband, husbandry friendly in the world. We are the most friendly to our waterways. Uh, there's continual improvements that need to be made with soil and cropping, uh, fallow, but we are the best in the world when it comes to conservation. And it's a continuous process and we get better every year. My education level is much higher than my grandfather's. And he considered himself a conservationist, and he was very much, but our education level is greater now than what he knew. Um, but here's the unique thing about American agriculture, is it's about 80% controlled by small businesses and mom and pop and family-run businesses. And they're decentralized. And they're and they don't, and this is the problem with the co-op. They're independent, they're staunchly independent. This is why the co-ops don't work all the time. But they hold a line. They are holding back the forces in our economy that will degrade our economy. And if you don't think that it bugs corporate farm interests that all these independent producers are out there, well, then you're wrong. Because I think when you really look at it and you look at agriculture, it's a three to seven trillion dollar a year business. And I think a lot of corporations are waking up to this. You see that with Bill Gates, and you see that with all the investment in farmland. And the biggest thorn in most people's side is they have to contend with all these independent, starchly independent private businesses. And the amount of equity, all those independent, staunchly, um, the equity behind them is immense. And it's not something, agriculture is not something that's easy to break into. And the learning curve is really high. And so, and we've seen the transition throughout history. Originally, there's the West was founded, Manifest Destiny was because of the cattle trade. And as we, the railroads came along to connect cow towns, other things happened. There was other things that were happening. But there was a lot of investment then. 
and there's been a lot of investment like we talked about in the 80s with the insurance. There's this constant turnover of corporate investment, but it's the one thing that's always consistent is the, in, the independent small business. That's the strong, that's the backbone of agriculture. And I think that these corporate interests, they cause a lot of problems when they're trying to get into it, but it's like a wave's crashing on, on a rock. I mean, I guess eventually it'll wear down, but it's really tough. So would your belief be that a third-party certification program is a way to uh, control and consolidate? That would sound conspiratorial. Uh, I want to come out and say that. I, I don't think it sounds conspiratorial. I, um, I mean, that might not be the agenda that you don't have five guys, five old white men sitting in a room uh, in a high-rise in New York City saying, here is the method to control and consolidate, but in, a, in, in a capitalism, we want to control and consolidate. Yep. That's, a, that's just the natural, we want to buy all the means of production and the resources around us, and we want everyone working for us at a price we determine that they're going to work for us at. Mm -hmm. That is capitalism. I think that there's this new... I'm going to try and choose my words very carefully. I think that the philosophy and the independent streak of ranchers and farmers is an annoyance to many people. I, I think that deep in our DNA, we are conditioned to worry about our food. We have taken 98% of the population out of direct production, hunting and gathering of their own food. But we have not installed that program that's downloaded into their head. And they cannot help but screw with the food system. It's a genetic, it's at a genetic level. And so here they're looking at these evil 8% of people that are actually production agriculture people. And everything in the culture tells them that that 8% of the people are basically out to kill them. They're poisoning their water, they're poisoning their food. And that, and that whole thing is manifested in people's head. And I don't know if they're consciously trying to sabotage their own food system. I don't think they are. But at the same time, the caliber, how can I say this without being crass? The caliber of character it takes to be in production agriculture runs directly contradictory to what most people's experience is in their own workplace. And it's a very uncomfortable thing for them. So I see this huge clash and I see that um, it's actually probably adding to our healthcare problems. It's adding to obesity in the United States. It's creating a lot of systemic problems because of this lack of understanding where people's food come from. It's a lot to wrap my mind around.
I'm gonna take a stab at summarizing that, Rick. See, this is why I love these, because I get to run my crazy theories and then somebody puts it together more eloquently than I can. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it a theory, it's your observation, and I think therefore I am, because you see it, uh, there is a certain amount of truth to what, what you've just said. Um, yeah, I'm having a hard time summarizing that. I, I would say what, what I took away, I'm just gonna, if I had to explain it to my daughter, Rich Bradbury believes that there is a effort to vilify American producers because that would be whipping them into control because that would uh, force compliance upon American producers because they're the last vestige of independence and the way they live, the way they vote, they carry guns. Um, that is unacceptable to having a structured society where the elite can control it. That's how I would explain it to my daughter. And you gotta do it because you gotta keep the food supply safe. Well, you have to now, say, you now have you're to... instilling fear in the consumer that yeah, if, yeah. if you don't vilify today's American producer, um, you're, not, you're not eating safe food. You're not eating healthy food, even though US standards um, USDA is complete bullshit, but we still have the safest food system in the world. Yep. And it's amazing how many people argue that point. And I mean, I just, I'll take my hat off to Europe. They have some pretty amazing programs, or Australia, or New Zealand. But I mean, they're not better than them. When we had the first mad cow outbreak, it took less than 72 hours to find exactly where that animal came from. And they used all the USDA brand inspection and uh, sales slip to trace it back. And plus, talk to the people that were at the sale yard, talk to the people that hauled it down. They found it within 72 hours where that origin of that had come from. And if you disagree with my summary of Rich's uh, view, uh, how he sees his perspective paradigm on the world, uh, just go turn on Netflix and watch a recent program produced by Barack Obama where they glorify the USDA. They present a completely one-sided opinion, and what the hell is it called? I'm trying to find my phone to look it up, but they they actually titled this program something towards the effect of the realities and the truth of the matter. Like they are the gold standards of produced by Barack Obama. They are the gold standard of what truth is, mm -hmm. and their first episode was on well, was on beef. And it was saying how great the USDA is. And I was like, wow, the, the 40 million Netflix subscribers who turn that on while they're sitting at home, who don't know otherwise, they've never been to a ranch, they've never been to rural America, they've never met a rancher. They're gonna watch that and they're gonna think, oh my gosh, that was mind blowing. I'm so glad we have the USDA on our side. And those, those, uh, small independent packers, those mom and pop shops, uh, man, they need to be regulated. They need to be controlled because they are dealing with so much biological hazard that that is gonna kill my children and create, create disease and another pandemic. And I, it is just mind blowing the effort out there to, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and say it, to 
pretty much dehumanize uh, the rural American produced <clears throat> American producer. Yeah, and rural America as a whole. So it's an interesting. We live in an interesting time. I, am I a complete pessimist about it? No, I think these things come in waves. I think that we'll survive it. We'll get out of it. I don't see how we're how it's going to happen, but I. I think what always happens is the economy just takes the wind out of that, those kind of movement sales. We, see, we seem to be headed towards that. And then you have some time of prosperity, maybe an election, or maybe a political change in the, in the posture. And you move on a little bit longer. The intensity of the um, of the public's percep perception of agriculture right now, I believe is at the same height that it was in the early 90s. It felt, I felt that heaviness to it. Um, and we got through that, it passed. We had some, the late 90s and early 2000s, I think we're all pretty good for agriculture. We saw some transitions, I think that's really when the organic certification came along, which has many flaws, but it seems to be a system that works pretty good. Um, as good as a government entity can create a system, and the people that are in it really believe that it's a fair system. And so we, we're just going through this cyclical thing, and right now we're amped up to nine or ten, and public fear is high on many different levels, and the media is terrible, and it just intensifies everybody's feelings about stuff and unfortunately for agriculture food and water are two of the things that create the most fear and irrational rational behavior in people when those two things break that is everybody's greatest fear we can live with a lot of shelter water food but we need those common things to really feel comfortable with at home and are comfortable, and there, there's a there's a narrative in this country that those things are all at risk, and so it amps everybody's intensity up about it. So you're you're saying waves come in and waves go out. They come in, they break, and then first world problems aren't such a big issue when you're dealing with five dollar gas. Yeah. Well, that that is, uh, I mean, that's some good optimism. So let's not leave people with this episode uh, unhappy. Let's end on a good note. I would say that the positive thing is, is uh, producers, rural Americans who have a real stake in this, oh, consumers have a stake in it, but producers have a share in it. Um, get a seat at the table. If, uh, if ESG standards are being forced upon you, help write those ESG standards. Because uh, if you're not uh, writing the menu, you're on the menu. I love that saying. You're the first one I heard. So I think that the important thing, we got a little bit off the track in the end, but look, there are systems, like we talked about coming out to beef, desert mountain beef. There are stuff, there's stuff out there that works for both the consumer and the rancher, or the consumer and the farmer. And we just need to look at those a little bit more and see that, we can create those mutual beneficial relationships and that all these things are possible. And there's a lot of forces that are against that. But 
things that we can preserve, preserve is independent agriculture. Nobody wants to see the, and having been in Russia, I've seen what the corporate large organization agriculture does, and it, it's devastating. And nobody, nobody that eats food in this country wants to see that. And I think when everybody takes a deep breath and looks back, like we talked about, we have a great food system. It gets bemoaned a lot, but it's probably the most, one of the best in the world. We have a lot to build on, and we can do a lot better. And we can take those consumers where they want to be. But the, it has to be from, it has to come from, the conversation has to start from a level of mutual respect rather than demonization. Yeah, and I, I'm going to take this back to ranch investing um, for the listeners out there like who are like, okay, Randy Weaver and David Koresh, you guys, you, you uh, hardcore blowhards out there fighting the government, uh, wrap it up with how this relates to ranch investing. I would say you want a lot of different buyers for your yes. ranch. You don't want just Syngenta, Cargill, JBS, Bill Gates, um, TIA Craft and Hancock Financial, you don't want just them competing to buy your ranch. You want thousands of different people wanting to buy your cattle, thousands of different people wanting to buy your ranch. So that's that's why it's better to keep it a large market with lots of independence. And what I've seen is, uh, what I've seen in my, my real estate practice is, uh, I have not seen, I have not had a traditional rancher buy any of the properties that I've sold. And uh, one of them is very much an advocate of uh, conservation and uh, um, the high desert sort of landscapes. He's not anti-cattle by any means, but he dials it down. Um, another guy, he sees a better food system. He wants to be part of creating that. And he started from scratch. I mean, He's I'm on the phone with him a lot, and he's but he's committed and he's and he wants to see this. And so, what I see the positive is that kind of investor, that kind of rancher that comes in and learns those things. And as long as they're contributing to the community, the, the diversification and the innovation that they bring from looking at that perspective from a, from ranching at a different perspective, I find immensely valuable. And I think. We are going through the largest wealth transfer in the history of the world. We're going to see a lot more of these type of buyers. And it's very important that we make them welcome and we help educate them along the way and do the best that we can to transition them into the communities that they're going to be joining because I really think they're going to bring a lot of value and make a lot of positive changes in rural communities across the West and across the United States. I'm going to shift down right there because you just opened up a can of worms for the next episode. That is the topic. Rich Bradbury, what is your real estate company called? High Country Real Estate, Lakeview, Oregon. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, we have a Facebook page. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn. and uh, you, can you can get to me through either of those. One of the owners of the historic MC Ranch. Um, thanks for coming on, Rich. When we come back for the next episode, part three of Rich Bradbury, uh, we're going to talk about going forward what does land ownership look like in the West and how your market is similar and different to my markets. And this will be exciting. Uh, you seem very inclusive and welcoming of, of 
some of these changes that, that we're experiencing. Thanks for coming on, Rich. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.